What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina, the pod of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I've been waiting for this podcast for multiple days, but really for multiple weeks because... I was in that position where I had the review screener copies of The Last Dance, uh, ESPN's 10-part documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And I believe I texted you about this. I believe you said, never contact me again. I hate you, was your response, which certainly, (laughs) certainly hurt my feelings at the time. But in the back of my mind, I thought, huh. You know, at some point here in the future, Michael's going to watch this thing too. And when he does, I have a sneaking suspicion that the basketball dork within him is going to rise up and it is going to really enjoy, um, you know, this kind of piece of artistic material, whatever you want to call it. And now that you've had the chance to watch episodes one and two um, with your wife, I was hoping that we could kind of dig in and I could get your first impression. So, as you're thinking back on the glorious viewing experience, if you want to call it that, um, what was your takeaway? I mean, I guess, first of all, maybe I'm assuming things here. Did you like it or did you dislike it or did you love it or did you hate it? Where'd you come down? No, I mean, I'm a basketball fan. So it, it's like it's in the canon right now already for me. I love it. I, I said to you beforehand, we started recording that I just wish they released every episode uh, like immediately. I, I it, at the end of each one, I was, you know, at the after the end of the first one, I was fumbling for my remote because I had to start the DVR. I was I was panicked that for whatever reasons, like a, a Real Housewives of Beverly Hills episode recorded over the second episode or something like that. So I'm oh, no. momentarily panicked. And you know, you flip on the second one, the second that the, the second one ends, I shriek as loud as I can because it just they abruptly come to a close. Um, in very like episodic form, and uh, which is not something I'm used to now in this binge everything era that we're in. So I just wish everything was available r- right from the jump. And it's it's honestly a little difficult to to judge the the it's a you know like knowing that it's ten parts and ten hours uh, to judge the thing based on just the opening two parts. It's just like it's like judging a book on the introduction. So from that perspective, uh, it's a little frustrating, but. All in all, I was blown away, and even though I knew a lot of the stuff already, some of the stuff I did not know, and it was freaking incredible. Yeah, so I think 6 million people plus watched episode one on Sunday night, which is a a very big number for ESPN, especially when it comes to documentaries or or anything along those lines. Anything that's not sort of like a live football game, that's a huge number. Um, And I think it was a good sign for them that, number one, people were complaining that there were commercials, because I think a lot of people were just treating it like a movie. And they're like, what do you mean there's commercials? And it's like, yeah. I mean, there's obviously going to be commercials. This is the first content they've had in like three months. Like they're probably going to sell ads for it, right? I think that it was also a good sign for ESPN that a lot of people seem to be tweeting your same thought, Michael, which is they would be willing to just binge the whole thing that night. Mm -hmm. But the Open Floor Globe knows this about you, Michael. You went to Japan at some point and you came back convinced that you needed to wake up super early in the morning and go to bed (laughs) super early at night. And also we understand that your wife tends to go to bed uh, earlier on weeknights. So here's the, the million dollar question. Let's say all 10 episodes were available for you to binge. How many could you have gotten through and how many do you think your wife would have gotten through before tapping out and asking to go to bed? What do you think? Because this is against your nature. This is against everything (laughs) that you stand for. This is not how you live your life, Michael. So what do you think? Yeah, we're obviously in a in different territory right now as as human beings in society. So my my personal schedule is a little uprooted, but she could only get through, I would say, maximum three episodes in one sitting. I could get through all 10 easy. Like, absolutely. Like, it it would ruin my next day. (laughs) It would ruin maybe my next 48 hours, um, at least, but I could easily have zoomed through it. I am chopping at the bit. I'm still so jealous that you've already seen the first eight and I just, I can't wait to, uh, I mean, I can't, I'm like, even just talking about it with you, I'm like stumbling over my words. I, I don't even know where to begin with everything that I loved so much about it and everything that was very controversial about it. I mean, you know, trying to follow along in the Twitter conversation uh, on Monday, so I had not already seen it, but basically the whole world already did, trying to follow along about Jerry Krause and uh, Scotty Pippen. I mean, I was trying to avoid all those conversations. Um, 
but then when you watch it, you want to jump in and talk about them with people. So I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this. Well, yeah. So let's start there. I mean, I think Jerry Krause gets presented very early on as the villain. Michael Jordan's basically calling him short and fat to his face. Everyone's <laughs> questioning why is he putting you know Scotty on the trade block so publicly? Why does he want to rush this rebuild? Um, when I was watching this section specifically, I was doing the, the very natural thing for a reporter of like, could I imagine this happening in the modern day, right? Like, would we ever get a situation where like a Bob Myers would be so confrontational to Steve Kerr and Golden State Warriors stars in a press conference setting? And it's like Bob Myers is almost the anti-Jerry Krause, right? I mean, he's doing everything he can to massage everybody to keep them happy. Um, you know, ultimately, like the end of the KD era is Bob Myers crying on stage because he so feels so guilty that the organization let Kevin Durant down. Like that's just exactly the opposite of Jerry Krause, like packing up Scottie Pippen's bags and like Phil Jackson and like kicking those guys out of town. Right. <laughs> so the contrast between what the NBA environment is like now, where I do think management tends to take a backseat to players. It's obviously the player empowerment era, but I think that has a, a, a shifting dynamic in, in the power relationships between those two positions um, and what it was like in the 90s is is stunning. And it's one of the things that really jumps off the uh, the screen in the first couple episodes. It's so funny that you brought up Bob Myers and Steve Kerr as an example, because that's the exact uh, analogy that I, or I guess whatever the opposite of analogy is that I wrote in my notes. Like, just imagine Bob Myers wanting more credit than he already gets for the construction of that dynasty. And, you know, I was actually just reading... Uh, I just finished uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss's book about the Warriors and about the the making and breaking of their dynasty. And there's this whole section about Bob Myers and how, you know, being someone who played at UCLA, um, just this 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 ethos of wanting to, you know, uh, d- dispel credit because those who want credit, if everyone wants credit, you're never going to get what you want as a collective. And if everyone diffuses credit and kind of passes it off to teammates or coworkers or whoever, then, then you're able to succeed as a whole. Uh, so I just thought that, you know, th- it's, it's amazing that the, the Bulls succeeded and a real testament to just how incredible Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were as basketball players that they were able to rise above Jerry Krause, who um, his whole, like, I didn't even realize how toxic it was, particularly with him and Phil Jackson, who, I mean, you, you start the season and you're basically like, if Phil wins, I don't care if Phil wins 80, goes 82 and 0, this is his last season as a head coach. That is something that would just never, ever, ever in a million years happen in today's NBA. Nor should it. It shouldn't have happened back then. That's an insane public position <laughs> to take. It just makes zero sense. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in interest of defending Krauss, like he made a number of really good moves along the way that helped Michael Jordan out, that helped Scottie Pippen out, right? Um, whether it's grabbing Horace Grant, uh, whether it is the Tony Kukoc trading experience, for Scotty, trading for Scotty in the first place, trading uh, Oakley for Bill Cartwright, uh, you know, bringing in Dennis Rodman, finding Phil Jackson in the first place, right? And so I think that there's that classic line about Kraus that he deserved more credit than he got, but not as much as he thought he deserved. I think that mm-hmm. kind of nails it on the head. But you know, I'm even curious: Have we overcorrected here, Michael? In this modern era, where guys like Bob Myers try to tell us, "Oh, we don't deserve any credit. It's all about the players." I mean, you would never hear a modern GM try to make the argument that organizations win championships, players alone don't win championships. You know, like Krause's famous line, kind of needling Jordan and letting him know that you know it's not a one-man show. We're all here, and we all deserve part of the credit. You would never see such a confrontational type of statement, even though I think it's you know factually true that like you know players can't win alone. Um, certainly, like the Spurs have kind of uh, you know been the the model for that uh, for that philosophy kind of playing out over the last twenty years. But have we overcorrected? Have manage has management gotten too deferential to the players? Right. Well, I mean, sometimes when these guys say, "Oh, it's all about the stars. Oh, it's all about the guys." I do roll my eyes every once in a while, and I kind of wish somebody would would channel their Jerry Krause because you at least you give Krause credit for being authentic and being his true self, right? Like 
sure, go ahead and call me crumbs. I'm going to have crumbs all over my clothes. I don't care. You know, like (laughs) there's a part of it that actually makes him a a little bit of a magnetic character, even as he's repelling all of the key figures in his life. He's a great character. I wish, you know, I I wish he didn't pass away so that his, you know, there could be these um, isolated interviews with him as there are with just about every single character that was involved. Hey, Michael, I have a hot take on that, actually. Sure. I think he might, his legacy might be better that he's not doing the interviews. Because when they do show him in the press conferences, he just digs holes. It, like it, it, it makes him look <laughs> that's, that's, so yes. so much worse. Like is he better off as Jerry Krause, the martyr, as opposed to Jerry Krause, the guy who's doing like a two-hour sit-down defense of himself, where maybe he starts to look a little bit unhinged, and maybe he's just like, you know what, Michael Jordan never won a title without me. Okay, what do you want me to say? Like, isn't that possible that that could have come out at some point? I, I- yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, watching them, the episodes with my wife, there were the scenes where, uh, you know, they show the players getting on and off the bus and Jerry Krause is sitting in the front seat and he looks just so sad and miserable and alone. And at those moments, you feel so bad for the guy. But then you're right. Every time he speaks in an interview, every time, even to this day, when Michael Jordan is sitting in his Miami mansion or wherever they were filming those interviews, when he's talking about Krauss and you're just like, man, like it was all this guy's fault. If this guy was a little more selfless, they would have kept it going. But you just you do feel incredibly terrible for him in in some of those moments, for sure. So I want you to do a little uh, mind game mental experiment, Michael. I want you to put yourself in Scottie Pippen's position, okay? You've won five titles in seven years. You've Mm -hmm. won every accolade there is. You stepped up when Jordan was playing baseball. You led the team. You've been in Jordan's shadow your entire career and not complained about it and actually made it work. And how many times do we see that in the NBA where a guy is willing to sacrifice and be the number two player for basically an entire decade. On top of that, you're not even one of the top 100 highest paid players in the NBA at your prime, and you've got an entire family to support, right? That is a difficult situation to be in, but then your GM goes public shopping you saying we're we've listened to trades uh you know we like scotty but certainly we're going to do what's best for the organization and everything else the modern superstar would never put up with that and obviously scotty responded by delaying his foot surgery uh, for multiple months not coming back until january and actually requesting a trade uh, at one point but uh, as we all know it didn't come to that um would you have ever played for the bulls again after Krauss did that because I don't think this was a case of of Scotty getting into his feelings or Scotty feeling bad about himself because of the money I look at that as just crossing the line from a disrespectful standpoint by Krauss and I I think if I was in Scotty's position not that I would go on strike personally but I would say look you know trade me or I'm out like I, I think I would I would feel so personally hurt um, by that approach that I'm not sure I would have been able to give, get over it. And I guess this is my long way of saying I have a lot of respect for Scottie Pippen for swallowing his pride and contributing to the sixth title uh, after just watching this first scene with Kraus by itself. I loved everything about the Scottie Pippen episode. Um, you know, when he says... I was going to enjoy my summer or something like that to that effect when he's discussing <laughs> delaying the foot surgery. Yeah, he's not going to bleeping uh, like, ruin his summer. Dude, I I want that on a t-shirt. I want that as like my answering machine, my voicemail. <laughs> I, want, I want, anytime anyone asks me to do anything, I just want to hold up a sign or press a button that plays the recording of him saying that to let them know what I'm about at that moment. Um, that just sp- really spoke to me, and I respect the hell out of him for admitting that in the interview. Um, look, like I, I, with when it comes to Scotty's contract situation, I did a little bit of reading about it. There was so much great literature and great work done uh, after the episode came out, and then even going back to uh, the '98 season and beforehand. I mean, so Scotty, just for those who didn't even watch it, really. Um, Signs this seven-year, $18 million contract in 1991. And, you know, 
when he signs it, he it, it's before he knows he's going to be one of the league's best players, before Michael Jordan becomes Michael Jordan and the Bulls become this two-part dynasty. So he, you know, he takes as much money as he can. He wants to secure himself and help his large, needing, immediate family. He has two family members who are paralyzed, including his father. So he knows firsthand that tomorrow is promised to no one. And then he gets basically screwed when the salary cap jumps from $16 million in 1995 to $23 million in 1996. And that's kind of when there's, there's an issue. Um, and this is where I kind of want to uh, inject Jerry Reinsdorf into the conversation because for as much criticism as Krauss gets, I think the buck all, always stops with ownership. And I don't think Reinsdorf is getting enough criticism for how he handled everything. For anyone who read any of the books about the Bulls and, and, you know, the Jordan rules, playing for keeps, anything about Reinsdorf, it basically paints him as this guy who would much rather win a business deal than win basketball games. And so if he's able to, as he says in the, in the, in the documentary, he talks about the contract negotiations and how he would not... You know, he was advising the players like, hey, if you want to sign long term, that's wonderful. But, I, you know, I'm not going to renegotiate and, sh- and signing shorter might be wiser for you. Like, who knows if he actually said that? I think that that's a little a little foolish for people to maybe or a little naive for people to maybe take that at face value. Um, you know, there's this big Newsweek feature that came out in 1995 that I reread uh, about MJ's return and Scotty's unhappiness. And in it, there's a source who says that one of the reasons Michael left to play baseball was Reinsdorf and his contract situation, because Michael signed his own eight-year, $25 million deal in 1988. And, you know, he was not the highest paid player in the league for years afterwards, even after he ascended to become the best player in the world. And at a time when people were recognizing him as the best player of all time. I mean, I went back and looked, and in 1991, Jordan made less than seven players, including Danny Ferry, Hot Rod Williams, and Chris Mullen. In 1992, he made less money than three Boston Celtics, including Reggie Lewis. So he was obviously upset about his own contract situation, and I just think... Like, there were rules at the time where you could reopen negotiations so long as you were under the salary cap, and Reinsdorf chose not to because he was winning those negotiations and he was squeezing value out of the contracts. So I I just think that, you know, he deserves a little bit more criticism than I think he's getting right now. Well, is that the reason why Jerry Krause was around so long? Because he was so excellent at taking all the arrows for the boss, you know? I mean, it's like, if I'm Reinsdorf... Krause is like manna from heaven. It's like, oh yeah, throw hey, him out there. Let, let Michael make fun of him. Dude, let, let Scotty make fun of him. Dude, I mean, the evidence, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. Like, look at the Chicago Bulls since Michael Jordan left. I mean, it's like, we're just now getting, uh, the, the, the Gar Pax era is just now coming to a close. That lasted like, I mean, they were they had their run and they had some success, but they were an embarrassment for a very long time. And it's just now finally ending where Jerry Reinsdorf is not really even in charge of the team. It's, it's his son right now. So I think that there's a, a through line there and a consistency that can't be ignored. Yeah, I think also important to point out with the, the contrast between Jordan's financial situation and Scotty's, they were both definitely underpaid. But late in Jordan's uh, tenure with the Bulls, he got these giant balloon payments basically like one-time deals where he got like 30 million dollar salaries and it was almost like Mm -hmm. the make good on his entire career and i think it happened twice for him scotty did not get those as you mentioned there was no renegotiation there was no way to kind of take care of scotty so that's going to foster uh you know a double standard thinking on scotty's mind rightfully and the other big issue was jordan is clearing insane amounts of endorsement deals, you know, more money than anyone can even imagine from every heavy hitter there is. McDonald's, Gatorade, right on down the list, right? through Nike. <laughs> Nike, you know, throughout the entire, you know, most of the 80s and the 90s. Scotty, is, it's not like he doesn't have endorsement deals, but it's not on that level. So if you're Jordan and you're sitting there frustrated that you're making less than Danny Ferry, of course that's going to bother you. But at the same time, like those swoosh checks keep cashing. So you're like, you know, you have a way to kind of justify it. If you're Scotty, you're just in a completely different financial ballpark and you're living in Jordan's shadow. That's what I mean. It's unbelievable in hindsight that he was able to kind of hang on as the number two guy there in Chicago for as long as they did. And of course, the fact that the partnership worked so well on the court was the saving grace here. But I think in the modern NBA, they would not have been able to survive, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there were some pretty high profile playoff meltdowns uh, from Pippen 
uh, you know, mm-hmm. not you know, not checking back into the game. He had the migraine incident. Um, he had some other injury issues. I just think that that would have been an insane microscope for him to operate on in the modern media environment. I think the resentment of Jordan's fame, celebrity, and popularity would have been really, really difficult to stomach for any teammate for that long. And then, of course, we know how hard driving of a guy Jordan was, and that really worked to Pippen's benefit because he was the one guy who really leaned all the way into it and learned the most from it. But I do think, like, if you're just kind of being constantly scrutinized, Twitter, social media, you know, uh, first take, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, day after day for years uh, in this modern era, I'm, I'm just not sure they would have been able to keep it together as long as they did. Um, so that's what I mean. Like, I don't know about you. I came away with more respect for Scotty after watching this than I had previously. And it wasn't like I disrespected him previously. I just uh, tried to put myself in his shoes and was like, man, this guy was a really good soldier. I, he's, I, I don't, I mean, we've, we've had all these conversations about overrated and underrated players throughout history. I mean, Scotty Pippen, especially after you watch the, that second episode and you kind of process the sacrifices that he made, uh, you know, um, not every decision was the right one, but he is just vastly underrated, uh, in, in just looking at history. And I mean, it's really funny when you think about him, at least when I do, I think about this humble, um, uh, someone who's an incredibly humble figure who's willing to take a, a, a backseat to the, the greatest player who ever lived and who understands his place and understands his role. And that's that's kind of his narrative. But then there's that clip of uh, uh, Charles Oakley when he was still on the Bulls and he's like grabbing Scottie Pippen, like a cocky Scottie Pippen during his rookie year by like the scruff of his neck and then uh, he slaps him at the after uh, I, I don't even remember what they were talking about but that clip was really funny and it kind of spoke to uh, like Scotty had uh, supreme confidence in his own abilities outright as well so it could have gone Ari and it, it didn't and uh, that that's a credit to Scotty Pippen and um I really hope that history remembers him for the player that he was because he was freaking incredible. No doubt. Hey, biggest surprise or biggest disappointment? Anything that jumped off the screen to you when you were watching these first two episodes that you just weren't expecting? You know, honestly, it's it's kind of blasphemous to say, but when I think about Michael Jordan, the player, and the aesthetic of his game and how he he approached it, I always think about those last three years when he was on the Bulls. And, you know, this guy who was so methodical in the post, he had the turnaround fade away. He just, like, picked you apart from the mid-range. And he was, like, a little bulkier and a little slower. And, you know, he could obviously still dunk on you, but he played primarily below the rim and he outthought you and he used his mind in a lot of ways and his toughness. Uh, But... A lot of the documentary so far from what we've seen has been highlights from uh, earlier in his career, including in college. And I had honestly a lot of those clips I've never seen before. And I mean, he's doing like the slam dunk contest dunks, like the dunks that won the slam dunk contest in games at UNC. Just absolutely a freak athlete. Yeah. And I Rocky really don't McRadle. know if that's appreciated. Yeah, I, that is insane to do in a game. I mean, well, what, oh my what about the part where he's icing his head because he just casually banged it on the backboard while blocking a shot? How about that? Yeah, clear concussion. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he stayed in that game. I would imagine that he did just because of the time and the day and who he was. But just, I, it's like he's a pogo stick. And um, there's the play or the game, all the highlights from the game against Milwaukee that gets highlighted. The uh, I think it's the third game of his entire career where he goes up against Sidney Moncrief. And uh, there's that great play where he's like he like triple pump fakes with one hand near the free throw line he just he's just literally floating in midair like everyone else has jumped and already is on the ground by the time that he lets go of the ball at the apex of his leap and it's like he's just so much better than everybody else on the floor it's uh so that that Michael Jordan I really don't I don't know if it maybe that's just me and how I think about him when I when his name comes up 
But that era of his career is just, it's mind-blowing how athletic he was. No, it's a great, great point. It was one of my biggest takeaways, too, because, you know, you always play that game of what's your favorite Jordan moment or what's your favorite memory or, like, what's the one that sticks with you the most? And for me, it's very much backloaded. Uh, like you're saying, it's the last few years of the the second three-peat or, you know, I fondly remember the first three-peat, but only more in, like, kind of, you know, fits and starts because, you know, I wasn't quite old enough to remember the whole thing. Um, for me, it was a total blind spot, the early Jordan, like the pre-Phil Jackson Jordan. And I, I knew the stories and I'd seen some highlight clips, especially that game against Boston in the playoffs. But that part, because they weren't winning very much, doesn't really get talked about. And, you know, this idea that like the triangle offense and Phil Jackson arrived and kind of like, you know, put Jordan into a little bit more of a functional situation and allowed him to be his best is one of the most like enduring narratives um, of the Jordan kind of uh, catalog. Mm-hmm. But it is fun to think about the alternate history where they just don't ever bring Phil Jackson along. And it's like, okay, Michael, Doug Collins is just going to be your coach. You can have a 40 usage. You can take as many shots as you want. You can just continue to be this crazy freak athlete that you were describing earlier. But now you're getting more and more uh, experience within the league. You're getting stronger to deal with the, you know, the teams like Detroit and those powers that were kind of the traditional teams when you first came in. LA, Detroit, and Boston are now kind of going by the mm-hmm. wayside, and now it's your league. I've always wondered, like, what if there was no triangle offense version of Jordan? What if he was just fully unleashed basically for his entire career? Does he still wind up winning titles? And I think there was a lot of critics at the time who would say, oh, he never would have been able to do it his way. And I kind of feel differently. Like, watching those clips of like 1985 Jordan, it's like watching the guy in the first guy to run a four minute mile or like the first guy to figure out how to do a high jump, you know, backwards, like the Fosbury flop. Like it it does seem like he's fundamentally changing the game with how he's playing and how everyone's reacting to him and just how difficult he is to guard. And there's that great scene of, of Larry Bird in the locker room being like, I have never seen anyone play this sport like this. That includes everyone who's ever done it. Um, and he calls him, he calls him God. Right. At age, (laughs) at age 22. Right. So that's what I'm saying. If you just didn't have the whole like, oh, Michael learned how to play with his teammates version. What does it look like? And does he still win a title? I think he probably still does. Like, I don't, I don't see why he wouldn't have been able to do it on his terms, but of course, maybe he doesn't go six and zero in the finals and dominate for a whole decade without Phil. I, it's a fantastic. What if I have not thought about it as much as you have, I think, but when you watch the, uh, those clips particularly of the series against the Celtics, which I don't think a lot of people realize that he came, that was the same season that he broke his foot and he goes to North Carolina and he's playing five on five in secret and, (laughs) and the Bulls management doesn't even know. And there's that great quote about, uh, you know, if you, if you, if there were 10 pills and one could kill you, if you had this really big headache, would you take the pills to help your headache? And, Jordan has this great expletive response to Reinsdorf when he asked that question um, about coming back and kind of disobeying the the minutes limit. But the 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 footage of him in the garden, just dissecting one of the best teams, if not the best team, before Jordan's ninety six Bulls was the eighty six Celtics, and he's just dissecting them, like treating Dennis Johnson like 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 chop liver and just murdering Danny Ainge and there's the clip of him with that that baseline semi spin past Rick Carlisle for the N1 and then the camera zooms in on Rick Carlisle's face and he just looks like he wants to crawl in a hole and die at that exact moment like Michael Jordan was on a completely different level athletically his skill was just it it was absurd I mean he's like driving by Dennis Johnson and then there's Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish at the rim, and it doesn't even matter. He's still finding a way to put the ball in the basket or and getting to the free throw line and all that. So I, I just no, I mean he was it's really he was rock climbing on Mount Rushmore. It's like there's Bird, there's McHale, there, yeah. there's Parrish, there's Walton, there's Johnson. It's like there's Ainge. Who cares? It doesn't even matter. Like he's just gliding right through all of them. It's crazy. Is there any cooler person ever in human history than 1985 Michael Jordan? Gun to your head. Is there, can you name a cooler person than 85 Michael Jordan? I can't. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I 
I, not really. It's like, it's like 80, I'm trying to think of what year was Eddie Murphy's peak of cool. It's like Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy, and Michael Jordan. It's probably like the same time frame there. But like, yeah, no, he was like the coolest person in the whole world. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it it holds up so well, too. It's also, I thought it was funny that people were like, wow, Jordan could really dress when he was younger. And like, you know, he's always remembered, I think, by Twitter, especially as being like <laughs> the worst dresser, you know, in like in uh, American history. And some of the fits he was getting off when he was in college were uh, were pretty good, too. Last question here on The Last Dance. What did you think about the controversy over the Bulls potentially tanking? It was right around that same time you're describing with the foot injury where uh, obviously ownership and management doesn't want to bring Jordan back. And on that one, I got to say, I probably side with them. I mean, it was a pretty risky situation and he was handling it fairly recklessly, going behind their backs, uh, you know, playing five on five, like you described in North Carolina, doing whatever he could to get back on the court because he wanted to play in the playoffs. And that's just who Jordan was. I respect his position, but I think Modern medical science probably says that Krauss and Reinsdorf were on the right side of history on that one in terms of taking the cautious approach. Now, at the same time, what Jordan didn't like was the philosophical part of it, right? He wanted to make sure that they actually wanted what was in the best interest of Jordan rather than what was in the best interest of their lottery positioning. And his big fear at that time was they were just trying to tank to get a better lottery position. They didn't care about making the playoffs. And to Jordan, this was like an absolutely disgusting uh, idea or notion. And in so much so that in an archive video from the time that they show, Jordan basically calls them out and says, you know, this shows a losing attitude in management and the ownership and like just goes right after them. Again, he's doing this at 22. What did you make of that? When you were watching that, were you trying to do the whole thing of like, could this happen in the modern day? I mean, did, did any of those thoughts go through your head? Uh, I First of all, I wasn't even aware of all that. And I, I too side with management, probably, but I totally like it's it's like Jordan was just so consistently this competitive, maniacal uh, monster even then, and uh, I, I so I respect that part of him for sure. Um, I don't think it was maybe the smartest thing for him to want to play with a foot injury where a doctor's telling you there's like a 10% chance if you re-aggravate it, that's your, that's your career. Like that, that's just not, it, it's not even a conversation in today's league if that happens. And to be frank, there's a lot of players probably who come into the league and if they hear that, they're like, yeah, I'm not, okay. I, if, if it was like a, a, a 1% chance, they'd be like, all right, sit me down for as long as I need to sit. <laughs> like, I, don't think, I don't think a lot of players today even have the same mindset that Jordan had at that time. But then well, the other thing that's like pretty interesting is obviously you can't know in the moment what that draft is going to, to give you or yield, but there really weren't a lot of great players in that draft. I mean, it was a pretty disappointing one and probably potentially maybe the best player was Len Bias, who passed away famously, uh, infamously, um, selected by the Celtics second overall uh, before he played a minute. So yeah, I, I just... I, it's it's really awesome to see Jordan being that same competitive animal that he was even that early in his career and being so disgusted with management publicly and privately is uh, it's really fascinating to go back and look back at it. Yeah, I think that the the modern contrast would be like the Ben Simmons experience, right? So what if rather than shutting it down for his entire rookie season, what if Ben Simmons pushed to get back on the court? And while he pushed to get back on the court, he was like, screw Sam Hinkie. The process is ridiculous. It's a disgrace to basketball. We should all be all about winning here with the Philadelphia 76ers. That's all I care about. Let's go out and win some basketball games, right? Um, we took it. I don't think anybody blinked twice when Simmons was shut down for that whole year. Did anyone? I mean, I don't remember. No. Yeah, it was like that was almost considered the smart thing to do. Or, of course, Philly's going to do that because – they did a similar thing with Joel Embiid, and you know their philosophy was pretty clear. I I would love to hear Michael Jordan with that tequila and that cigar give us his full thoughts about trust the process. That's got to be just incredible, right? Oh, well, for sure. I mean, uh, another really interesting comparison is like, what if Zion this year said something like? 
you know, I'm disgusted by our, our management and the fact that they won't let me play every game 35 minutes a night is a, it's a total disgrace. And like, if that happened today, I mean, you can't even think about a player coming out and saying oh, something like that. So, well, it's funny because it came through just ever so slightly with Zion. He was over it. Like he he definitely thought that they were being too cautious with him. And I could just mm-hmm. see slivers of the frustration a couple times this season when I was around him on that subject with the minutes limit and everything else. But he swallowed his pride. He played it. You know, remember after they shut him down at the end of that uh, debut game, so he was out. You mm-hmm. know, he made it clear that he wasn't pleased that he would have wanted to do it differently. But he didn't call anyone out. He, you know, he was said, you know, we're all a team. This is a long journey. He kind of stuck to the script on that. Um, which again, he's being the bigger person, and I respect uh, anyone who's doing that, making life easier for those around them. That was just not Jordan's way, <laughs> you know. Like he did not care whatsoever. And I guess we're never going to see a player play like Jordan ever again. But man, we could use a few Jordans in front of the microphone in the NBA right now, couldn't we? A little bit more honesty, a little bit more straight to the uh, straight to the heart of the matter type conversations. I'd love it. Dude, the, the, the clip of the game, I think it was against the Pacers, where uh, they don't put Jordan back in, and they still win because John Paxson hits this floater in the paint with like 11 seconds left or something, the go-ahead two-pointer. Um, and then they cut to Paxson today talking about that game, and he's like, yeah, they didn't let uh, like our head coach did not let uh, Kraus into the locker room after the game. Like <laughs> know, so this good. is the type of stuff that if that were to happen today, it would be the the leading news story for like seventy two hours, and someone would get fired immediately, and it would just be this huge firestorm. Well, the best um, the best part about that though was that Paxson, like you know, twenty years later, gets into a fist fight with Vinny Del Negro, Vinny Del Negro, yeah. in the hallways <laughs> of, the, of the 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 Bulls arena as well. So it's like history. You know, everything that's new is old, right? Uh, or old is new. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Well, Michael, thank you very much for indulging me in that conversation. I'm sure we're going to be getting into a lot of talk about this series over the next four or five weeks. Let's uh, shift gears, though, because we got a bunch of questions from the Open Floor Globe, and they emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And on the last episode, Michael, you were explaining how Gatorade did the entire Be Like Mike campaign, targeting it exactly like you and the importance of names. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure if you knew this, but my youngest brother, his name is actually Aaron Michael because I negotiated with my parents. I wanted to name him Michael Jordan Golliver. Obviously, they thought that was a little bit um, <laughs> over the top. And so we we compromised on Aaron Michael, which is sort of like Air Michael. Um, and he's had that name ever since. Of course, he doesn't. That's incredible. He doesn't really like uh, basketball, so it's it kind of you know wound up falling on deaf ears. <laughs> and we actually named our golden retriever when I was a child, Emmy Jane. I also wanted to name her Michael Jordan, which they said was inappropriate. So we went with Emmy Jane or MJ. So this idea of names and the impact of names, I think, is a a big one. And Carrie writes, My friends and I have been talking about very dumb NBA-related things since there's no NBA to talk about. One topic that went far too long was how personas and or overall careers could have been different by very slight name changes. For example, would Scottie Pippen be a legend if he went by Scott Pippen? What about Mike Jordan? I think not. He offers a few more options here. He says, what about Dick Matumbo? What about Jimmy Worthy? What about Walter Zerbiak? 
And so he, you know, he has his point here, Michael, is that sometimes the name contributes to the legend or it contributes to the persona. And I think he's onto something here. So when you were weighing his examples, was there anyone um, who kind of came up to your eye, your mind as someone who just would not have been the same guy or would not per- be perceived the same way had his name be slightly different? And I guess we should point out guys like LeBron James, it's a very unique name. It certainly contributed to the hype around him early, I believe. Similar with Jalen Rose. Um, and there's the story about how all these you know parents are naming their kids Jalen over the last 20 years. And it was basically a name that no one ever had before Jalen Rose came along. Um, so the power of the name thing is real. But uh, which names kind of stuck out to you when you read this email? I, I love this email. We've been sitting on it for weeks. Uh, just another real quick. I mean, like Shaquille O'Neal is another one. You see so many Shaquilles in like oh. the high school ranks coming up. It's hilarious. All-time classic. It's probably like 14 of the top 100 prospects are named Shaquille. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> it's good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, breaking this down, I, I looked at it as wondering if certain players as you said you know if they had slightly different name variations how we would perceive them uh you know the jimmy james conundrum i think is really interesting so like uh i think james butler would have been a small tragedy well hey don't you remember that there was the whole of course back and forth with uh, brett brown right Yep, and jimmy butler says at the press conference uh you know i think brett brown is basically like that was James Butler out there. That's a like old man, like professional, blah, 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 after a playoff game at the podium. And then Jimmy is told about it. And he's like, that's not my name. My, my name is literally Jimmy Butler. <laughs> so <laughs> that was really great. Um, and we learned to come that, you know, their relationship wasn't the tightest. Uh, but like James Butler, I agree. Like Jimmy Butler is just, it's perfect. It rolls off the tongue. Uh, it really kind of describes what he's about. He's not super serious all the time, but uh, J- I just think James Butler is just like a very uptight name, like well, buttoned up. It's really not who he is. I mean, Jimmy's also just that Tomball Texas name too, right? It's a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. It's the the cowboy hat flair to Jimmy. Um, I think it does fit him. Another g- a guy whose name fits him really well, I think is Kyrie Irving, right? I mean, that's just a very cool name. Uh, you immediately associate it with a guy who can go between his legs at full speed through four defenders. You know, it's just like it fits his style of play. It fits his persona. Um, so that's another one I just off the top of my head where I was like, yeah, this one does kind of fit. If his name was like Kevin Irving, right? I think the whole thing is different, right? There's there's going to be so many Kyries in like 15 years too, which is something we need to prepare for. Um, I'm prepared, Michael. I, I'm, I'm here holding, okay. my, holding my chair. <laughs> I'm strapped in. No, I mean, like, real quick before I move on to some other ones, like, James Harden. I could not imagine Jimmy Harden. That's just, I think that there's already a low respect level for him from a lot of people. I think the respect level would absolutely plummet if his name was Jimmy Harden. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it would like make him a a little cooler, a little less professional? No, I mean, Jimmy Harden was the guy who showed up 35 pounds overweight a few years ago. I mean, you remember that. (laughs) There was that one year as like coming off the Kardashian relationship where he just didn't really have things together and he got off to a slow start in Houston. Uh, that was the Jimmy Harden era, and I'm I'm thankful actually that the James Harden era is back. But yeah, it's tricky, man. Like guys have to make this decision. You know, are you going to be Mike Pina? Or are you going to be Michael? Am I going to be Ben or am I going to be Benjamin? Are you going to be Jimmy or are you going to be James? I think you really have to settle into it. You know, my other brother uh, when he was growing up was Danny, and then he you know grew into Daniel, and. Um, Gotta say, as an adult, Daniel fits him just quite a bit better, right? You know, you don't necessarily want, uh, you know, Danny. It's like not many people can pull off Danny. Obviously, Danny Ainge can, but there's very few adult Dannys I'm, out I'm, there. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a big crux of the, it's in my notes right here. <laughs> I, I I normally don't like nicknames that are for small children for adults, like Timmy, Tommy, Bobby, Robbie. Billy. So when I'm, I was going through these, and one of the players, Nikola Jokic, if his name was Nikki Jokic, I feel like it would be at once a disaster and then also incredibly appropriate because Jokic is probably like the biggest kid in the league. 
And if Nikki was his name, I feel like that would just be a perfect fit and it would make him even more popular than he already is. If I needed to kill someone in Belgrade, I'm calling Nikki Jokic. That sounds to me <laughs> like a hitman. Um, <laughs> that's all I got. What about Luka is kind of a perfect name for Luka Doncic, right? Because you can yell out Luka, right? I mean, if it was Larry Doncic or you know some other just more generic name, it wouldn't have that same kind of savior vibe that Luka has. Um, and obviously the Hallelujah song like leaned right into that part of it. Um, so congrats, mom and dad, you nailed it. I, I have uh, here's one that I've really been thinking about way too much because we have a lot of time on our hands. But I kind of wish Anthony Davis went by Tony Davis. <laughs> oh no, because <laughs> you want him to be more boring, or what? What's your angle? No, I mean, Tony, I feel like Tony is an underrated NBA name. Like, Tony Allen, Tony Parker, Tony Batie. Like, we've never had a Tony Davis. He could have owned it. I, feel, I, I just I think it would have been a lot cooler than Anthony. Along these same lines, are we sure Bradley Beal couldn't have been upgraded? I mean, Bradley, no disrespect Bradley's to the Bradleys rough. out there. It's, it's rough. It's, yeah. not, it's not the best. And it fits him because he's a good, wholesome guy, family-oriented, donates a lot of money to charity. So, like, I think he's made it work. But if he was Brandon Beal... Is he now first team All NBA? Um, you know, is there a meaningful difference? <laughs> Man, these are really important questions. Uh, even just Brad Beal, like whenever I'm writing his name out, I just want to write Brad Beal. I think Brad Beal is a lot cooler than Bradley Beal. I hear you. I mean, I think to prove this guy's point, if Zion Williamson again, if Zion was not his name, and he just had, if it was, if it was like Greg. Right. Greg, Greg Williamson never even gets drafted, right? I mean... No, not at all. And I say that as someone whose little brother's name is Greg, and I, they, my brother doesn't really like the NBA either or basketball either, so I probably won't hear this. But no, Greg Williamson is a total... It's a train wreck. You know how like modern stage parents, that's become a whole thing? Reality TV show stage parents and, you know... I think a lot of former athletes, they're naming their kids a certain way, maybe because they expect their kids to become athletes or to become famous. I actually have a sports writer friend who names all of his uh, children in a certain way because he wants them to be able to have a name that could be presidential one day, right? He doesn't want to like <laughs> disqualify them from being president by giving them a weird name, which I just love that philosophy. Um, but like, I guess what I'm getting at is this idea of naming your kid Trey Young and then having him just shoot 23 pointers a game. Is that a little bit too scripted? Are they trying slightly too hard to force an identity on their child? Or do you believe that that sort of uh, came together organically? I think that that was uh, manufactured 100%. Like, his name is not Randy Young. If it was Randy Young, what sport is he even playing? Is he is he just off basketball? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I cannot even imagine him being Randy Young and playing this type of basketball that he does. Can I can I throw one one more quick one at you that I've I think would really uh, alter how this player plays the game? Please. I wish that Donovan Mitchell was just Don Mitchell. <laughs> oh boy. I think he'd be a more responsible decision maker on the court. Okay, elaborate. I'm, uh, you're, you're gonna, <laughs> I don't. You need to settle, sell me on this one. So Don Mitchell Don, is is more of a ball control guard as opposed to a uh, isolation guy, or do what? We, do we have Do we have any Dons in the league? I, there's not a lot, and there's a lot of a lot of like interesting things you could do with Don as a. As like a, I, I'm trying to like, I'm venturing into like Godfather territory here, but there's just a lot of funny things that you can do with Don that you can't really do with with Donovan. Although I do think Donovan is a pretty pretty good name. I'm not I'm not like crapping on Donovan. Don Mitchell it just gets to the point more. It's like Damian Lillard is really cool, but Dame Lillard is really what you want. What about just go all the way with it and have him be Donald Mitchell? And then he's just one of these guys who never turns the ball over, you know, doesn't really try to dunk unnecessarily, lays the ball in off the glass. I mean, my grandpa's name was Donald, uh, and he was a big Wall Street Journal reader. You know, maybe Donald Mitchell just sits down and, and browses WSJ.com before games. I mean, what do you think? Sure. No disrespect to your grandfather, because my father-in-law is also named Donald. But Donald is... is uh 
it, it's not in vogue right now for some other reasons, I think. So we, we might have to, to veer away from that one. Oh, I see. I see what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> didn't even didn't even think of that. Wasn't even going that direction at all. Any other no. name ideas, Michael? Or are we uh, ready to move on? Um, I think we might be. I think we might be out here. I thought that I thought you would like Tony Davis more than you did. I'm not gonna lie. No, I think um, Anthony Davis is just like create a player generic, and Tony Davis doesn't save it. So it's a fine idea. I'm not. I'm not hating <laughs> on it. It's just like it just really feels like it's computer generated. Um, and he is such a unique talent that he just needs a crazier, different, unique name. And I think ultimately, like he's a great example where he came up with a very generic personality because he was given a generic name, right? Like Anthony Davis is probably the most generic superstar there is from a quote standpoint, from a personality with the media standpoint and everything else. Like they've really tried to make this whole Ruffles sponsorship thing a big deal and it's just not sticking, you know? No, not at all. I think think the best way to just wrap this up is to tie it into our first conversation about The Last Dance. And there's that famous shot that Jordan hits uh, as a freshman at UNC to win the national championship. And he says, or I think someone says in the doc, that that was the moment he went from Mike Jordan to Michael Jordan. And so it really does matter what your name is and how people refer to you as to what your perception is publicly. For sure. It's actually fascinating. When I went to the uh, North Carolina's basketball museum, which is great, and I highly recommend it to everyone out there, all they have a lot of material like his recruiting information when he was a teenager and and uh like i guess applications that he had had to unc basketball camp and stuff and on all the documents he lists his name as mike jordan and um it's interesting that that really was a turning point moment as he looked at it where it's like he's growing into a man and this is his big moment to to shine on a big stage and it's almost like he realized oh i've got to take this a little bit more seriously i don't want to just be mike for my entire life right um just a a telling moment but also at the same time i love referring to him as mike because it's the idea like the be like mike you know he's just this figure where he not only is he superhuman but he's also just like this everyday presence where he feels like you know everybody has a relationship with him so to me I, i don't think we should cast the mike part of it into the wilderness i think it actually winds up being a pretty useful device uh especially when we're talking about him on podcasts okay we're gonna take uh a slight turn here to grab a question from my guy Stav down under. He writes, to what degree does a player's name affect their popularity? Surely Bam Adebayo gets extra love for his cool first name. What are your uh, starting fives if the only criterion you're using to judge players is the coolness of their name? So what he wants us to do, Michael, is to basically summarize the conversation we just had by trying to target... (laughs) the guys who have just absolutely nailed it or whose parents have asked ab- absolutely nailed it. Do you have any favorites? I have a few names here for sure uh, that I just have always loved and there's really no rhyme or reason for, for why. Um, I mean, we already talked about Jimmy Butler. I've always loved that name. I think Steph Curry is a really great, perfect, succinct name for him. Uh, some others, not these aren't really the best players, but I just have always like their names and enjoyed them. Uh, I've always loved Jabari Parker. I thought Jabari Parker would be better because of his name. It's incredible. Um, same goes for Alfred Payton. I was very high on Alfred Payton. I love Payton as a last name for an athlete. A lot of great Paytons. And Alfred was just amazing. You, t- you you combine that with the hair he had coming out of college, and I thought he would be a superstar. Yeah, I thought, um, he, I thought it was a red flag. I never would have drafted him, just based <laughs> on those two factors alone. I mean, I granted, I'm I'm leaning into it a little bit with my, my constant buzz cut talk, but um, the whole thing concerned me. And he, when he immediately lost like four pounds because he finally cut them, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this, this is overdue. Yeah, the haircut hurt a lot of the image there. Um, Here's a better player uh, and just a great name, Pascal Siakam. Like, you can't go wrong with Pascal Siakam. It's incredible. The fact that he has a nickname that has stuck, uh, I I just feel like the nickname is not necessary. His name is perfect. Yeah, he was on my list, too. I'm going to give you my top five real quick. Um, And I mentioned a bunch of them already. I think Kyrie Irving definitely has to be included here. I think LeBron mm-hmm. James, we've said the name so many times that we forget about how good of a name it is. But when you're talk- thinking back to like when everybody first discovered him as a high school player, the second coming of Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, his name is LeBron James. 
uh, it just the last name part complements the first name. The whole thing is easy and quick to say. It has this like you know king type vibe, the King James, um, LBJ. I mean, all of it just works. Zion, of course, and then my two um, my two sleeper picks who I haven't mentioned yet. De'Aaron Fox and Nerlens Noel. I think that uh, with mm, Fox, obviously his yes. last name is self-describing his style of play because he's so fast. And De'Aaron is just a nice, uh, you know, unique version of Aaron or DeAndre. I mean, just kind of combines, uh, you know, a whole different genres of first names, but meshes them together in kind of a new formulation. And then Nerlens Noel, it's just the beautiful alliteration, right? I mean, it's really hard to beat. Um, the three ends kind of back to back to back and the quick last name Nerlens Noel was the guy that you're you're referencing with Alfred Payton where I was like this guy can't miss there's no way he's not going to be a star if his name is Nerlens Noel yeah. and uh, didn't play out that way the other thing about names do you, you know the thing about how you can't trust people whose last names are also first names um this is news to me, but I, it, does, it doesn't apply to me or you, actually. So I think I'm, I'm on board with no, this so good. far. Continue. Yeah, we're good. But no, there's this thing. I don't even know where it came from. But uh, so like for uh, two examples are like uh, Chris Paul. Like you can't trust Chris Paul because Paul is a first name. Well, Paul George masquerading is, as a last name. Right. Paul George is another one, right? Paul George is screwed. Dwight Howard is screwed. These are these are names that. Uh, for whatever reason, bother me <laughs> because I someone told me like when I was a kid that you couldn't trust people who had last names or first names. I'm sure there's going to be some listeners out there who know exactly what I'm talking about, and I hope you email in and support me. No, that um, honestly, donate. that sounds bigoted, Michael. I'm not sure that whoever told you that <laughs> <laughs> might have been. Uh, might have been polluting your brain, but okay, continue. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's where we're going to have to end it because, uh, I, I, can I actually, <laughs> there's two more names that I want to shout out before we move on. Please. Because I know we're never going to talk about names ever again. Um, Dwayne Bacon, just, I just love it. Sizzles. Yeah, as, a, ve- as a vegetarian, I can't co-sign that, but I, I hear where you're going. Uh, sure. You- and then uh, Darius Baisley. I just feel like I'm I'm really high on Darius Baisley, and a lot of it is because of his name. I think he's going to be an absolute stud. The uh, I, I don't really know how tall he is. I think he's like six eight six nine wing uh, in in Oklahoma City, who did not play college basketball and went straight to the G League and did that internship with New Balance. I think he's going to be a stud in like five years, and his name is going to be a humongous reason why. Awesome. I love it. Okay, a couple more on the alliteration front that we definitely need to name check, and I'm shocked you didn't bring this guy up. Rajon Rondo, all time. Hall of Fame first ballot name, no question. And then also Ricky Rubio. I think that one's just perfect. And it goes back to your, oh, yeah. your idea. If he was Rick or Richard, it just does not work. He never makes the NBA. But Ricky is a lottery pick taken above Steph Curry, right? Yeah, and he's got the boyish face too, which is great because you're right. Like as I said earlier, like I I really don't like the uh, the names that are for small children that then we still use for adults. Um, you know, like if Tim Duncan was Timmy Duncan, I know people call him Timmy, but come on, like if he was Timmy Duncan, if that was what was on the basketball cards and on the 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 roster sheets and everything, I don't think he would have been as great as he was. But Ricky Rubio is absolutely perfect. Yeah, the last one on the alliteration front would be DeMar DeRozan. It's a great name, you know. I'm like, I'm the first guy mm-hmm. to kind of make fun of his game and everything else, but I think he has a case as having the best name in the NBA, just flat out. Um, the last one I want to bring up, though, it's something that I would have done if I was like a kid playing on you know, FIFA 2000, making my own version of myself uh, as a soccer player. Bogdan Bogdanovich. I could easily see myself you know, like <laughs> typing in my name as like Ben Benovich, right? And, and like having myself be a, a striker for a, a Balkan nation on FIFA, like, you know, 1998. Can easily see that having happened. Uh, underrated, awesome uh, move to sort of name yourself after your own family's last name. That's kind of cool, right? That's very cool. Um, I, that name did not come up when I was doing this exercise. But it is a 10 out of a 10 for me. <laughs> All right, let's, let's close this out here real quick. We, Michael, we got a couple follow-ups from our last conversation about numbers. So we're going to shift from names to numbers. Ricardo writes, hey, Ben in the pod, on your last episode, you talked about Team USA jersey numbers and how they don't make any sense. 
Actually, there's logic behind it. On virtually all FIBA international competitions, jersey numbers must be between 4 and 15 to make it easier for the refs with hand gestures when signaling fouls, timeouts, and all the rest. I know that because I played some basketball here in Brazil as a youngster, and our uniforms had to follow that pattern for Federation tournaments. If you look it up, you'll see all rosters are 4 to 15, much like in FIFA Soccer World Cup, where all rosters must follow 1 to 23 on their numbering, even though players wear different numbers for their clubs. Ricardo, thank you for that great explanation. We actually had a bunch of people, Michael, probably a dozen people wrote in uh, explaining that to us. And here's what I would say. I should have known that on the FIBA side, so that's my bad. I I appreciate everyone for bringing that uh, information to my attention. Uh, Counterpoint, FIFA, what are you doing? Fix this. This is terrible. 4 to 15 makes no sense (laughs) whatsoever from a basketball perspective. I'm pretty sure the referees can handle putting up more than five fingers at one time, Michael. It's not going to break their brains. I think it's time that we appeal FIFA. Look, there's more important things going on in the world, uh, no question. Uh, We could probably have most of our efforts... Uh, you know, from a community organizing standpoint, focused towards like stay at home orders right now, Michael. Um, but mm-hmm. after we handle that, we need to get FIBA on the line and change up this numbering thing. It's ridiculous. We have to stick to what we can control. And I think we have some sort of influence potentially over FIBA and their rules. So I, I agree with you. This needs to change immediately. It's a total disgrace. Also, we got an email from Marcos and he writes, There's a big tradition of wearing number seven in the Balkan basketball world, and that's why Luka Doncic wears 77. Drazen wore seven, and he is still an idol around there. Um, Luka wore seven when he was playing for Real Madrid, but then when he came to Dallas, the number was already taken by Dwight Powell. Um, So he's using 77, and he does that as well when he's playing for Slovenia because Dragic wears that number, and he is the captain of the team. Tony Kukoc is another guy who famously wore number seven. And that does uh, come up in the documentary, Marcos. You were asking whether they were going to cover that part. Jerry Krause was also uh, quoted another press conference saying that the number seven was the biggest number in Europe uh, because of his pursuit of Tony Kukoc. Maybe leaving out this idea that number 23 might have been pretty popular in Europe at that time as well. Um, <laughs> again, just kind of stepping in it when he gets to uh, you know the public situations. But, uh, Michael, I think this one kind of proves my point as well. And I had heard that about Powell. It just kind of slipped my brain when we were talking about it on the last episode. What is Dwight Powell doing holding number seven hostage from yeah. Luka Doncic? Like, they couldn't have worked that out. Is this a case where Luka needed to sign his sneaker deal earlier in his career so he would have had the upfront capital to buy number seven from Dwight Powell? What do you think? I mean, Dwight Powell, from everything you hear, is a beloved teammate, an awesome person. It was really sad. I think a lot of people around the Dallas Mavericks organization were just dejected when he tore his Achilles. Uh, yeah, but this is a total mistake. I mean, when, you, when you're when you drafting a player who is, uh, granted he's a rookie, he's coming in, he's a teenager, Dwight Powell is a veteran, he's been on a few teams, he's been around the block, but like you got to give the number up, especially because like Dwight Powell is a big man, like big man, you, you shouldn't be wearing number seven anyway. Come on, man. Yeah, he should be in the 40s, man. Like just get him out of here. Like you're Understand you're juicing your player efficiency rating by your high rebounding rate and your high field goal percentage and everything else, but that does not make you a superstar, Dwight Powell. Give up number seven to Luka. That's a real debate, though. Like, Dwight Powell is not going to be in Dallas forever. If you're advising Luka, Michael, do you change mid-career from 77 to 7 and just kind of pretend like you never came in with that 77? What do you think? It would help. This his, is a, I think it would help no. his marketability, honestly. I really do. No, this is a question that I think about a lot when it comes to marketability, and I'm sure he's repped by Nike, correct? I'm, I'm not even 100% yeah, on that. Yeah, he's, he's actually a Jordan guy now, yep. Okay, so yeah, they will be thrilled when he changes the number, because I would assume that that means more jersey sales, and all the kids who have 77 are going to have to get seven, right? Is that how this works? For sure, and I also think that they should put Luca on the back of his jersey, and they should put Giannis on the back of his jersey, turn it into a more of an international soccer global feel to it. Um, would you buy a Dallas Mavericks Luca number seven jersey? How much would you be willing to spend? Would you shell out the premium, authentic price, $300 to get one of those for your collection, Michael? Or are you going to settle for the swingman version like 120? What do you think? 
I, I'm an adult, so I do not wear jerseys around what? in public. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to spend two cents on that. But I, I do think that I agree with you. They should have Luca on the back and, and Giannis on the back. And that would be a lot cooler than what it is, even though, you know, their last names are also great. Um, I, I do wish that Doncic was, had a few less... Uh, you know, characters in it, which is a little tricky when you're a professional writer and you're trying to, to cover him. But um, yeah, having Luca in the back would be great. But no, I don't, I'm not buying jerseys. I'm sorry. Like, how many jerseys do you own? Dozens. I'll be honest. I don't wear, <laughs> I don't wear them in public, but I do cherish my jersey collection. Look, it's just a part of basketball. I think a lot of, a lot of fans uh, go that direction. You know, you just got the different eras of Jordan that you can kind of look at nostalgically and, um, you know, if a, a player really breaks out or has a big season, you know, I'll get his jersey as a, a memento of that time period. I've got a Durant Sonics jersey. Um, if you really want to get dark, I've got a custom Kevin Durant Blazers jersey, number 35, uh, one of one uh, <laughs> that uh, wow. reminds me of Portland's 2007 pick. Anyway, you were completely wrong about jerseys, Michael, but we're going to close on a note that you were apparently completely right about. Pete writes... Michael, you were spot on with the shot put for Steven Adams. His sister, Valerie, is a two-time Olympic and four-time world shot put champion. So it's definitely in the genes. And obviously, Pete is referring to our conversation about which NBA players would make track and field stars. And he goes on to say, the other gem- genetic match that you missed is Mike Conley, whose dad, Mike Sr., was an Olympic and world triple jump champion. And Michael, as I was thinking about this, I believe Andrew Wiggins' mother was also a big-time sprinter for Canada, too, if I'm not mistaken. So there are actually some ties between the basketball world and the track and field world. On top of all of that, I was sent a video by a very thoughtful listener, Lindsay, who actually found... Steven Adams' first three-pointer of his career, which I believe he shot-putted from like mid-court using shot-put technique, and it just <laughs> drained through the hoop, um, much to the excitement uh, of the uh, Oklahoma City announcers. So despite the fact that I still think Steven Adams is too tall and not sumo wrestlery enough to be a, a really quality, world-class shot-putter, I think the people are agreeing with you on this one. That's terrific, as they should. I appreciate the uh, the support from all our wonderful listeners. Yeah, don't let it go to your head, all right? Don't let it go to your too head. Late. It's way too late for that. All way right. too late for that. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another open floor, but we're going to be coming back early next week with more reaction to The Last Dance. This weekend, they're going to be talking about Dennis Rodman and the Bad Boy Pistons and the first title and everything else. So things are about to get really, really interesting. Guys, tune into that on Sunday night on ESPN. Um, until then... Go ahead and check Michael out on Instagram at, and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Guys, you can find our Apple Podcast page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Hey, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Ben.